I'm going to come clean with you. I really don't know much about commodities markets. Sure, I can spout off a few facts about the price of crude oil or how futures might differ from stocks in general, but commodities markets are insanely complex and fascinating, and we enjoy nothing more than trying to wrap our heads around something that confounds us on this podcast. But that fascinating complexity has real-world consequences. As anyone who's filled up their gas tank recently can attest, Prices for crude oil and refined products like gasoline have been incredibly volatile lately. The same goes for other essential commodities, from food to metals. This volatility affects not just consumers, but also producers of goods and services who use these commodities as inputs. Commodities have been traded for centuries and are notoriously difficult to predict because they're unique among financial assets. Unlike stocks, commodities don't represent a partial ownership stake in a productive company. And unlike bonds, commodities don't come with a contractually obliged stream of income payments. A barrel of oil or pork bellies or orange juice is simply a physical good that someone else wants to buy from you at a higher price than you paid. This makes commodities more akin to art than stocks and bonds. They can be influenced by a wide range of factors, from weather patterns to geopolitical instability. As a result, even the most experienced investors can find themselves caught off guard by sudden price movements. But data and history suggest that the extraordinary price increases of late may be driven by more Ponzi-like speculation than anything else. These markets are one of the most critical drivers of the global economy, responsible for trillions of dollars in goods each year. However, the way these markets are currently set up results in the financial sector capturing a significant portion of that value. This is because the original sellers and final buyers are typically not directly connected and must go through an intermediary or middleman to complete this transaction. This middleman is generally a financial institution that takes a cut of the deal's total value. And these deals happen millions of times a day. As a result, commodities markets are benefiting the financial sector more than the real economy. As expressed, today's commodity trading systems are both confusing and horribly inefficient. Noah Healy, who calls himself a recreational mathematician, is an entrepreneur with an engineering background and wants to change that. Noah's Coordinated Discovery Markets, or CDM for short, is a new way of trading commodities designed to make the process more efficient and transparent. By aligning the interests of market participants, CDM will create this efficiency that benefits everyone involved. In this episode, Noah explains how CDM works in financial markets. We also take a deep dive into the factors that affect these markets and how bubbles have popped up more in the last 30 years than seemingly the last 200, and technology's role in changing our economy for better or worse, including the effects of AI and, and so, so much more. It was a real learning experience for me, and I was really happy with the way the episode came out. I was a little nervous because... Like I said, this isn't really my forte. I don't know what is my forte, but this wasn't it. Uh, but find out for yourself, and I hope you enjoy the Noah Healy with Jay Burke and creating the most equitable market show. Welcome to the With Jay Burke Show. My name is Jason Burke, and though I'm technically the host of this podcast, it's the guests who truly take top billing. This is a place for curious minds who enjoy civil and sometimes meandering conversation. If you appreciate a few laughs and want to come away with knowledge about subjects that aren't always easy to understand, then you're the person I want listening to this podcast. Today, I'm joined by Noah Healy. Noah is a professional algorithm developer and recreational mathematician who has become an expert on game theory and designing marketplaces. Building on breakthroughs, merging physics and mathematics in the 20th century, he has developed a patent pending system to supersede commodity markets. Noah, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, Jason, yeah, thanks for having me here. 
Yes. Like I said a little bit before, um, not really in my wheelhouse, but I'm always looking to expand myself a little bit and expand the audience out a little bit. So you created something called Coordinated Discovery Market or CDM. Do you want to just give me a quick rundown on what that is? Yeah, yeah, sure. So markets have been around for millennia at this point, and their purpose is doing price discovery, finding the price that will cause supply and demand to match off against one another. Because as the 20th century's sort of command and control economies demonstrated, when you get that wrong, what you wind up with is either oversupply or far more frequently mass shortages. So what I've recognized is that there's actually three important components of any deal that happens. There's the thing, the commodity being bought, the the cash to actually buy it, and then the information that creates the surety that a deal should happen at this price. And so what CDM does is creates three separate hats or marketplaces for each of these three roles, which allows an individual to essentially only have to compete with other people within their own role. So if you're a producer that's bringing goods to the market, you're competing with other producers to bring as many goods as you can at the price that's available because that will increase your own revenue. But structurally, you are in a cooperative or coordinated relationship with everybody that's bringing cash to buy, everybody that's bringing information to the marketplace. And that's symmetric for each of the three groups. And this creates a scenario where the market is not a sort of face-off between two people attempting to beat one another, but rather a cooperative endeavor where effectively it's all the people versus the universe trying to create a market that's, that's operating as effectively as possible. All right. So a lot to unpack there. So basically what you're kind of saying is instead of playing against each other, now you're working in cohesion So the cooperation and competition are basically working together here. Um, The thing is that from a strategic perspective, people get a little confused about what the value of competition is. We, particularly because the leading members of our society are all the sequential winners of of long competitive things, tend to think of competition as some sort of finding of excellence. But what competition is actually really good for is producing losers, not winners. So like the Olympics, almost everybody loses. You know, billions of us couldn't even qualify for these events. Uh, And it all finally comes down to one or very, very occasionally a tie and two winners. But the value is that 8 billion people have been eliminated as losers. And so what competition is mostly good for is getting rid of bad ideas, inefficiencies, and so on. It's not really a great forum for innovation or production of excellence. It's a great thing for sort of holding people to a quality line. Okay. Because, you know, it's funny. So from a, I guess, a philosophical standpoint, I always think that this is kind of away from that. But I think in the world we live in, what made us great as a species was probably that we had a fair amount of cooperation mixed with the competition, which helped us move forward. But I think we're at a point where cooperation is so low and competition so high, it's causing a lot of the issues. This is on a way out there level, but I think it's causing a lot of the issues in the world. It's not really an out there level at all. I guess it's just a high view, like a sky high view. Right. One of the things that's interesting about exploring old ideas with this, the new sort of computational and informational knowledge is that it allows quantification of things that we tend to think of as more nebulous or political terms where debates could exist. But in fact, these things to some extent can be measured and quantified now. And the cooperative or or collegial types of arrangements exist within game theory and have their own unique set of interesting strategies. For example, one of the breakthroughs in non-zero-sum gaming is that it can be possible to limit your own options in order to improve your outcomes. 
in a scenario where people are generally cooperative and the cooperation is actually the value proposition, taking options off the table for yourself essentially forces the cooperation position to be the one that you want. So Nassim Talib has written about how intransigent minorities can essentially control the broader conversation. And so that's why like every kind of food you buy has a little thing on it saying whether or not tree nuts were yeah. like in a in a 500 mile radius of, of anything that was in this <laughs> because the tree nut people will, will keel over dead um, right. if that label's not there. And so a company like, you know, Nestle's or Kellogg's could manufacture two of everything, have, you know, the honeycombs that everybody can eat and then like the honeycombs that they've been manufacturing for for the last 40 years or they can just be like well screw that we'll just fix it so that you know the tree nut allergy people aren't going to die and then you don't care it's you know you don't have everything must be pre- prepared somewhere where somebody had their hands on peanuts five minutes ago <laughs> yeah but there that's where they're large enough i guess to stomp out competition right because they can afford to do something like that where well, others may not um no so this is a situation where basically because having a a broad consensus commodity production style thing is what's valuable the existence of a small minority that will not engage in the cooperative position unless their needs are seen to, will see not merely their needs seen to, but see their needs essentially propagated across everyone, effectively involuntarily. So you're getting what everybody's getting because that's what everybody's getting, but it's being tailored to the people who care the most and will will walk away if if they, they don't have their specific requirements. Right. So I might take a share in not eating something with peanuts in it, not because I have a peanut allergy, just because it's there and they're the group that made enough noise to, to support that. Okay. Okay. I get it from that standpoint then. So with CDM, how did you come up with this theory? How long were you working on this? Well, the problem that turned into CDM, I was working on basically a problem in computer theory and communication. And I found a game theory approach to that class of problems. And after a conversation with a friend, it occurred to me that a complexer version of of the sort of simple model that I built could turn into a marketplace. That what I found was this efficient way to pay a network of people, sensors, whatever, for reliable information. And so from the point of view of a marketplace as a system that provides reliable price information and that pays for that, it occurred to me that it might be possible to take that sort of one-way point of view and turn it into a sort of self-reflective thing where the market would gather up price information and then pay in an efficient manner for its provision. So it took me I suppose in all fairness, six months because the the code that actually carried it out and allowed analysis of the algorithm at scale uh, wasn't written until about six months after I'd started working on the problem. And then that's when sort of the wheels changed. So I was initially doing it effectively on a lark. It seemed like an interesting thing to do to see whether or not this technique, which seemed like it's something that might have broader application. Uh, but not necessarily useful for this. What the technique actually dropped out in this case was a marketplace that at scale would require effectively the resources we're using for this conversation now. The amount of data that this market needs to be able to process and communicate is many, many orders of magnitude smaller. All right. So in the process of this, I know you're getting your patent pending, but will it be rolled out in the next few years? Where where are you with it? Um, there are three groups that are currently working to get systems using this technology into the marketplace. Uh, right now, two of them are on blockchain-related things, and the okay. other one is uh, uh, like a more traditionally-based index system. And I'm 
scouring the world looking for more opportunities of people who would like to to give this technology a shot. How has that played out and how long has it been being used? Like I say, everybody's sort of in the opening stages. Probably the closest would be the index fund, which is out of South Africa. And they're hoping to have something up and operating by the end of the year. Okay. We'll see. We'll see where that goes. The blockchain stuff has encountered numerous headwinds with the latest blowups. Funding's a, a little harder to come by in that space these days. Do you find that with the volatility right now? It's It's been a little bit tougher for you or? Not really. The primary issue that I face is that the existing market model has been in use since the Renaissance. So, so it's got about eight centuries of the backlog and the current economic profession has decided that it is perfect and cannot be improved upon, which given the assumptions they're making is true, but unfortunately the existence of computers breaks that assumption. And so the major challenge I face is that the best possible customers for my system are people who are operating companies that have in some cases, been in operation for centuries, operate on principles that none of their operators, uh, users have made any contributions to because humans have been doing this since before any existing government existed. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, uh, And so convincing them that, you know, a few hundred lines of code and some mathematics provides a tremendous opportunity is is effectively meaningless and so that's that's my challenge yeah but at some point and we know humans are only capable of going so far with these things and we know what's coming down the pipe i think with ai and all these other computations they have i mean somebody's gonna have to maybe you're the guy who sees it before everybody else i don't know but you would think these companies have to be putting money into that uh, they are working on some things. Most of what they've worked on so far is actually running their systems through computers to increase their bandwidth, increase their speed, lowering processing costs, stuff like that. And unfortunately, that's exactly the assumption that breaks how their market operates. Yeah. And so what we've been seeing over the last generation at this point is that the markets have become less stable and more expensive. And that's what we're going to keep seeing. Booms and busts will happen with less predictability and greater frequency. And the costs of insuring yourself against those things will crowd out productive activity in the economy, shrinking our ability to produce you know, food, shelter, and clothing. And that's just what has been and will continue to happen as long as we attempt to maintain these systems in the face of their technological shortcomings. Yeah. Uh, But like you said, I mean, you're going against what they've been doing, I guess, for centuries at this point. And and there's a, there's a reason they need to be a certain way because it maintains the status quo for them, I would think. It does. But bear in mind that having market collapses happen sort of once a decade. I know. Isn't the way that it worked for the entirety of the 1800s, for example, or the entirety of the 1900s. It's not that market failures were unknown prior to like last Tuesday or something, but the frequency and severity of these market failures is pretty unprecedented. It's Uh, true. If if you were born in 2000, you've you've seen some stuff already, right? Like more than grandparents. And there is a lot of volatility since, you know, maybe the, I guess the nineties, maybe even. Uh, Pretty much. Yeah. So uh, effectively it, it coincides with the computerization introduction. So essentially since the late eighties, which would include, you know, the 87 black Monday, which was sort of a flash crash sort of an event, long-term capital management in the ni- in 1997, then the dot-com bust, the global financial crisis, yeah. frankly, hasn't even started yet because the world governments decided to respond to it by spending trillions of dollars that nobody has every year uh, since then. I was going to bring that up because the liquidity that's been pumped into the market, you could see... I'm not an expert in any of this stuff, so I would defer to you in a second. But, you know, 
interest rates have been low, which is mean means that it's easy to borrow, right? I mean, that's that's my assumption. It makes it yes. easy to borrow and to invest your money. But that's kind of just holding up the whole the whole thing. That's why at the beginning when COVID was happening, I mean, you still everything was still at like thirty thousand. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. companies have essentially been borrowing very cheap money to buy their own stocks, to jack up the stock price, to use as collateral to borrow very cheap money. Where's the productive economic contribution that's inside that loop? I don't know where it is. Yeah. Uh, But when you have a cycle of economic transactions that leads to gain that doesn't have a productive thing in it, you're looking at bubblish in the sort of best case Ponzi-ish in the worst case behavior. Yeah. Uh, And that's what we see all over the place. So in that aspect, maybe you explained this already, sort of how is CDM cutting that out, that kind of behavior? Is it doing that? CDM does is changes the nature of the conversation that's happening. So in a sort of bipolar one side, other side of the deal type of world, each person is bringing some amount of information to the deal, enough to convince themselves that they're on the right side of things. Uh, Of course, at least one of these two people is wrong. It's possible for both of them to be wrong, that the deal is actually perfect and it's, it's exactly where it should be. But by and large, somebody is in fact making money by buying at a lower price than they would be able to, or selling at a higher price than they would be able to if all knowledge was known. And that asymmetry is what markets are trying to ameliorate. But they don't have very many tools to do that with, and they don't have very much leeway. There's only one other person on the other side. So when a market starts moving in one direction, up or down, enough to start attracting people in because of the movement. So if a market's shrinking and people start saying, oh, that's going down, I'm going to start selling now because I'll be able to buy back later for less and you know make money. Suddenly you have a catastrophic crash or a bank run type scenario. If a market starts moving up and people start moving in saying, oh, cool, I will start buying now because I'll be able to sell tomorrow for more. You've got a boom or bubble type scenario happening at that point. And because there's no counterweight that functions in a bilateral environment, if one side of the trades gets crowded, then that herd movement can effectively overwhelm the, the sensible you know, short or long position. People have pointed out that if the shorts in in sort of the big short sense in the global financial crisis had gotten in very much earlier than they had gotten in, then they'd have been bankrupted. You know, Michael Burry, who sort of famously got the ball rolling and, you know, wound up getting some incredible like 3X for his his client pool or something, was very nearly fired and lost valuable clients and was something like a billion dollars underwater at some point. If he had started that ball rolling six months earlier, his fund easily could have been wiped out before Wall Street was actually forced to blink. Mm. Uh, And he still would have been correct. He just wouldn't be rich now. He would be very, very poor. His timing. Uh, Well, timing is a lot of it, I guess, then, right? Well, timing is everything. Yeah. And in a universe where computer timing enters the party, human timing, which obviously is the actual important part because human decision-making is the actual point of having the market in radiation existing. Computer and human timing are unrelated and effectively unrelatable. Humans can't make decisions faster than a few hundred milliseconds consciously. And computers, the current heartbeat of the market is in the microsecond time range and active R&D is being put towards getting it down to 100 nanoseconds. Once that step is taken, that would be a million X difference between the thing that matters, human conscious decisions, and the thing that we have. It's almost miraculous that it hasn't failed so hard that we've seen some sort of general systemic collapse but we're at 100,000x off the map right now. So, you know, how much strain do you think you could you can put on that spring? Yeah. Before it well, I'm sure all the money 
during the COVID era from all the world's governments is putting a huge, huge strain on that now. Well, we're seeing we're seeing exactly that. Supply chain disruptions caused by all sorts of different things exist within a context where for the last couple of decades, most business decisions have been based around just assuming effectively perfect markets and perfect supply chains. And and so creating much greater vulnerability because how much more can you save than by not having an inventory? Then supply chains get disrupted and all of a sudden you can't actually be a business anymore. Yeah, these sorts of issues of faith in a system which you are actively undermining, you know, it's it's the guy who's sawing away the tree limb that he's sitting on. You can do that for a while. Every single cell of the tree limb isn't absolutely necessary to support your weight. There's a line. Catastrophic failure won't be instantaneous. There will be some indicators along the way. But again, in the last two decades, we've had two major market bubbles and market crashes. So we're not talking about something coming from nothing. We're we're seeing the branch, you know, shake and shriek at us. Do you think part of that... This is going into maybe a different topic, but do you think part of that a mistake that we might have made was coming off the gold standard or the I think it's the bread and wood system? Um, so we left the gold standard technically 71. as the bread and woods two of uh, yeah. Sound money is I think a reasonable goal mm-hmm. and something that's that's perhaps valuable, but as I pointed out to several people in the blockchain space. Money is a unit of measurement. And so when your money is unsound, when you're having mass inflation, something like that, effectively, that's the same as changing the size of an inch or or a centimeter or changing the, the mass of a pound or a grain. That's not good for doing sort of repeatable scientific business, having, having your measurements get all screwed up that way. But if it's done in a coordinated fashion where sort of it's all happening at the same time and it's all predictable, it's massively more tolerable than sort of taking having your yardsticks be manufactured in like random shapes. And so what we're having is we have these mechanisms that do the measurements, these markets. They are measuring in units that we have made unstable, and that's not a good idea. We'd yeah. be much better off making those units unstable. But whereas, say, in the 70s, they were still capable of operating because we were still effectively a human system with humans talking to each other, we don't even need intelligent machines. I mean, the machines are already making important observations, deductions, and so on within the system and doing it at this machine pace. And so what we have is measuring devices that don't actually measure anymore. So... Creating a sound currency and plugging them into markets that function the way markets currently function. Who knows? Yeah. Like, you no, know, maybe it accidentally works better. Maybe it accidentally works worse. Right. Um, I think from a sort of ethical standpoint, creating a consistent measurement or doing our best job to create a consistent measurement in that field is a better idea. Uh, certainly far better than what we're doing, which is sort of having the governments of the world not just make it up on a day-to-day basis, but compete with one another to lie more profligately than than each other, Um, which is is where we've been for the last decade. But the problem that I'm looking to fix is much deeper, unfortunately, and and I think a, a much larger problem. My system as adopted ameliorates a lot of the foundational problems with an uncertain standard because by separating information, human knowledge about and sort of will to affect the future course of the value of the monetary measuring stick can be integrated and isolated from the general exchange in in a way that greatly benefits people that decide to create sound currencies which modern finance does not and cannot do because so much of their business relies on credit extension, which is is actually identical to currency expansion. 
So it sounds like the counterweight may be in the past and it's the system's so big and there's so many different inputs there, but might've been how slow humans were. <laughs> and then we move to um, obviously machines, computers doing the transactions just as fast as possible. We're inserting liquidity in there with no sound money and things are happening faster than human beings can really grasp or understand. Um, and now we have to get to a point where something like this makes it a little more understandable, I guess, in, in a way and slows it yeah, down. Yeah. Um, global or keeps up with the speed, I guess. Right. Yeah. Global simplification is my goal here. And sort of speed changing the rules is something that just occurred to me. Uh, did you ever see any of those like Disney animations on how to drive on freeways from like the fifties and sixties? Yes. You know, goofy. Yeah. And those were, you know, the freeways haven't existed for all of human existence. Right. Um, the, the interstate highway system was started under the Eisenhower administration. Right. So people had cars and those cars could drive 50, 60 miles an hour, maybe, but the sort of rules of the road in say the thirties or forties would have been probably a lot more similar to how you navigate around a residential or suburban neighborhood because cars wouldn't really go that quickly. Roads wouldn't really be that good. Um, And you'd be in your neighborhood with your neighbors who would know if you were some sort of maniac (laughs) (laughs) tire squealing or something like that. And so this notion of, you know, getting up to speed and then merging into dense traffic, which is really pretty terrifying if you think about it in the abstract. You know, it's obviously you get used to it, you just do it. But you're in among a bunch of one ton plus metal boxes that are traveling at a mile a minute. And those are the slow ones. And you're close enough to shake hands with people if if you were dumb enough to try something like that. Yeah. Uh, and it does. It requires different attitudes and, and different rules for operation uh, under those circumstances. And that's just, you know, a doubling or tripling of speed. And again, we're looking at 100,000x or more talk to people in the farming industry who say that they like to check out what the market's doing twice a day. Well, at sort of, you know, one thing per microsecond, that means they're taking two samples, one thing that's changing tens of billions of times. Yeah. They're like 10 billion X slower <laughs> than yeah. the checking on. How many rules do you think have to change <laughs> from driving your neighborhood to driving on the highway? That's maybe three X. What if what if there was another three billion X on top of that? How would the rules have to change for you to be able to do that safely? I feel like that's our whole world now, though, is how quick in every industry the rules are changing. For instance, like when you look at something like AI and disruption in the marketplace, like there's always talk about AI taking good portions of the work environment from humans. You know, whether it's driverless cars or even something like uh, what are the, instead of doctors looking at these scans uh, yeah, yeah. and stuff like X-rays that. X-rays and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, the AI is, is, can identify things that doctors cannot identify in those, yeah. in those scans. That's, that, that gets onto one of my sort of favorite hobby horses, um, that computers are a bigger deal than steam engines. If you look at the economic progress of humanity up until... James Watt. Human beings, sometimes they were a little richer, sometimes they were a little poorer. Mostly that seemed to do with whether the weather was nice for a while or the weather was crappy for a while. But then steam engines happened and suddenly physical labor could be done by rocks that were out of the ground. And I don't know how many people you've hired in your life, but rocks are cheaper than people. So (laughs) yeah. It was it was just a tremendous deal. A gallon of gasoline, which is getting pretty ridiculous these days, has about the same energy content as an entire week's worth of meals for a human being. Could you live for a week on what a gallon of gas costs? Like that's that's pretty rough. Yeah. Uh, 
And could you hire anybody to work for you for a week doing even just dumb labor for what a gallon of gas costs? No, not really. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So that is where modern wealth actually comes from. And societies and values had to change to accommodate people who could be that wealthy. Sort of like peasant squire relationship doesn't work when everybody is 10 times richer than that. Computers offer a similar kind of transformation, not of the physical landscape, but of mental work. And one of the things that I find most interesting is that the easiest jobs to actually automate are the ones at the top of society, not yeah. the ones that we're, we're working hard um, to do things like driverless cars, which are very difficult. And maybe a stunning breakthrough will happen and that will happen quite rapidly, or maybe it won't. And we'll chew on this for decades to come, always right. being five years in the future. But doctors looking at at MRI scans, because of how the human visual cortex works, we have to look at two-dimensional slices over and over again. But the MRI is actually a three-dimensional picture. A computer can directly access the entire three-dimensional picture at once and then run without algorithms it has on it. A CEO's job is to take in information and make decisions. Well, that's what computers do. What, they yeah. take in information and they make decisions. Now, writing or creating an AI that could replicate the whatever the economic gain of a CEO is may or may not be easy or hard, but I guarantee that it's easier than making one drive a tractor trailer truck. Yeah. So if we crack that problem, it is very likely the techniques that we develop to do so would crack the why do you even have a C-suite anymore problem at the same time. And that's not something that I see on the radar of C-suite professionals. They tend to see yeah. it as offering irreplaceable value to society and everyone else and not attempting to quantize and examine what they do in a manner that would allow the automated replication of that to the broader society and the consequential elimination of their livelihood from society. I never Uh, thought of that. Uh, Yeah, you're right because it's very hard. It's very hard to make a a robot or AI that can do plumbing work. Right. I mean, there's a lot that goes into that, the movements and, and just so many different processes, but I never thought of it from the extent the jobs that they would be really good at would be somebody who makes a lot of money and those people aren't really looking to get replaced anytime soon. Yeah. The, the, most of them seem to be concentrating on trying to figure out how to replace large swaths of the rest of society. Um, right. But the techniques that they make to make those breakthroughs are likely to also bounce back. And we're seeing AI making meaningful inroads into you know strategic games, which historically have been associated with the sorts of capacities that we associate with leadership qualities or, or strategic insight, things like that, possibly wrongly. Now that computers are clearly and inarguably wildly better than us for reasons having to do with their deeper understanding now, in the late 90s, when IBM created Deep Blue to beat the then chess championship chess champion Gary Kasparov, pretty much immediately after that contest, Kasparov went back to being the best chess playing entity on earth because the very specialized computer system that IBM had built was essentially built only to calculate chess problems. And having done the demo, they didn't need it anymore, so they mothballed it. By the 2000s, similar algorithms running on more commonly available hardware had gotten back to the level where they were world-class. Although I believe in the late 2000s, I read an interview with the then world champion Anand, where he had said he, he personally had never lost to a machine. But then things advanced further and they got sort of clearly better than us. But then when the Alpha, Alpha Zero project and the Leela open source version came later, the deep learning approach to chess. Not only did this program rapidly become vastly better than human beings and on par with top engines, which were vastly better than human beings, but unlike top engine play at that time, 
it was playing principled games that the leading chess players examined and learned principles out of and and humanity has adopted new chess principles because the machines have taught us these things and that's the interesting part of the story to me this is also now happening in go where basically until the deep learning go programs effectively couldn't even compete with with humans in any meaningful way and they went from that stage to being radically better than the best humans you know at this point we don't believe that humanity will ever come close to the level that the machines are at now and we expect the sh- machines to keep getting stronger but again human go has become much better because because the machines by playing for us show us things that we we'd never thought of before how how hubristic would we have to be to believe that modern business practices represent the peak of capacity in our universe yeah of of how to strategically arrange decision making uh, I, I sort of like to collect examples of you know missed opportunities or sudden changes in long term things things like Dick Fosbury changing the way we high jump the high jump had existed as an event quite probably all the way to the first Olympics in Greece, you know, human beings probably been competing with each other by attempting to jump higher than one another. You know, it's something that I did with other kids in my kindergarten. The fact that essentially every single human being in all of history jumped high incorrectly until one guy figured out how to get a human body over a bar better than anybody ever had is kind of stunning. Another one I, I thought up recently is the simple question of why didn't ancient Egypt develop the hot air balloon? Flax production, which goes back like 30,000 years and started adopting the, the flaxseed oil producing version 9,000 years ago. If you're doing that, you have all the technologies you need, well, that plus fire, to develop a hot air balloon. Mm-hmm. And so Sumer, Egypt, civilizations that pre-existed those if indeed there were any rome queen the court of queen elizabeth or or peter the great or or second dynasty china or the shogunate any of these these historical any of them could have developed the hot air balloon but the mongolfe brothers demonstrated the first one in 1783 in yeah. paris so hot air balloons are younger than the bill of rights that's crazy and there are technology that's older than the pyramids and not a little older than the pyramids, like almost as much older than the pyramids, like the distance from them to the pyramids is similar to the distance between the pyramids and us. Yeah. So, like what were we thinking for 9,000 years? Yeah. Well, so humans are just very, very, there's so much that goes into a human when you think about consciousness and awareness. I mean, you're dealing a, a computer. And AI is not dealing with human emotions. It's not dealing with physical pain or mental anguish. It doesn't need sleep, really. You know, it's so well, or or even just you know maintaining heartbeat, blood flow. Right. There's so some, um, yeah. You know that that's one of the it's one of the breakthroughs in in cognitive science is that the ratio of brain or neocortical size to body size is very important because things like sperm whales have much bigger brains than we do, but operating that body isn't free. Right. And, and so that it's, it's going to going to work. Um, things like ravens have much smaller brains than we do, but events very high levels of relative intelligence, but they're much smaller bodies. You know, they don't have as much overhead to, to operate all, all the systems that way. Yeah, I think I read something once, and I I could be a little off here, but I think it was about the brain uses about 20% of the body's energy just orchestrating. In other words, just sending signals wherever heart's got to beat. This is how you walk, thinking, everything. It's like 20% of one-fifth of your body's output is used just in that capacity. I've heard heard similar things. I've heard a range, um, 20 to 30% are most of the figures I've heard. I am not. An expert, so I can't right. tell you that the core is. I'd imagine it also changes depending on what it is that you do. Thinking hard chews up more energy than you know. That's sleeping. true. 
No, that's definitely true as well. Or even being in a sense of, uh, of anxiety all the time or, or something that's going to chew up a different level of energy and even affect your IQ in some sense. Well, introversion, extroversion has been determined to be related to that. Introverts have their sensory input routed through their short-term memory section, apparently. So if you're an introvert, you see something, you remember it, and then you sort of experience it through your instantaneous memory of that thing. Um, And if you're an extrovert, it's like a straight shot. You go from sense to, you know, reaction, basically. Um, And so what this means is that introverts physically chew up more energy interacting with the world than extroverts do. And so interacting with the world is more draining for them. And we see the the sort of causal behaviors and what it means to do that. The flip side, of course, is that extroverts, because it's it's sort of that straight shot, they don't have they don't have the same attachment to their experiences. So they experiencing things in as real a way you might think of it, or as as deep a way as introverts are. And so it it's easier for them to skip details because they're going to be remembering based on their reactions. So whatever their kind of snap impression response was, it's the response. And so the details that they didn't feed into that response get lost. That's interesting. That makes a lot of sense because you know it's internalized and... It's more of they take everything in and keep it up in the, I guess it goes through the memory and then the feeling kind of solidifies that. Whereas an extrovert can come off as fun and flighty sometimes, right? I mean, you're thinking like, why don't you remember that? (laughs) Like, or they can't have the details, but everything's kind of quick and uh, based on. And apparently that's, that's just brain structure. Um, Yeah. You can, you can you know, stick somebody in an MRI, you know, an infant or an 80 year old, you can stick them in an MRI, take a look at that part of their brain and just like introvert, extrovert, introvert, extrovert. Yeah. It's amazing what we find out about people in the brain. And we're really just scratching the surface. We really don't even know anything at this point. Very little, little amount that we actually understand about how the brain works. Well, AI will help us with that, right? It's, it's, it's a very big, very confusing universe and we have access to a very small piece of it. Um, Yeah, that's true. In one sense, I see this as very freeing because it allows us to understand that we're basically bad at everything. And so whenever you encounter something, you can think in those terms and just say, okay, what's wrong with this? What can I fix? What can I make better? And as an algorithm designer, that's essentially my job is to to look at things from uh, a computational standpoint of you know the complexities involved and think about what's essential and what's involved in creating that which is essential and how to do that as effectively as possible that must have always been intuitive though right you you were like that as a kid you wanted to problem solve and always into Um, math i guess i've always had a computational facility but my my logic is sort of always been skewed, as it were. I don't approach problems the way that everyone I've ever encountered in my entire life approaches problems. And to the extent that even in relatively constrained environments, I took a digital logic design class uh, when I was in college, and we'd have to wire up circuits on breadboards. And one of the first slightly complicated assignments was to wire up a flip-flop, which is essentially a circuit that's capable of remembering what state it's in. And there was like little drawers of chips. They had NAND gates and NOR gates. And you can use either of them to produce a flip-flop in, I can't remember, I think it's four gates. And I guess based on the instruction, everyone always uses the same kind of gates. And Mm -hmm. I used the other one. And what happens when you do that is that the wires essentially all go backwards. And also the there's sort of a, you're making an adder and there's sort of a, a, a dummy floater bit. And when you use the other kind of gates, the dummy floater bit has the opposite value that it does when you use the kind of gates that everybody else uses. And so I was presenting this to the, the section head of, of my little lab and it was like Martian. It was like, I've never seen this before. Yeah. 
what are you even doing? And then we flip some stuff around and he kind of, you know, it's, oh, wait, yes, that, okay. I suppose that makes sense. You know, why did you do this? And that, that why did you do this question is something that I've heard over and over again through, through the decades. So then what made you pick trying to solve a problem that you're solving now? What made you pick markets and I guess you'd say finance at that point? This is interconnected with everything or? Pure, pure luck, frankly. Okay. I had been working for a company and had effectively completely automated the job for which I was hired. And that company had no career prospects as, as an official position. People could not advance. So I left and sort of took a sabbatical and decided to take some time to think about computational math, which I'd become very enamored with. I did a couple of projects, things that were interesting to me, but uh, I don't know that they had any particular practical application. And sort of the last thing I thought about was this network consensus problem and found this thing. And then that led me to, oh, you know, trying to figure out how to apply this to marketplaces that also sounds like a very interesting problem. Maybe I could do it. Let me see if I can. And so it was It was basically just curiosity and, and good fortune. I had no expectation I could come up with something that was even comparable to the markets that we had. It wasn't until after I'd figured out how much better this was and was trying to figure out how to explain this breakthrough to people and, and get it adopted. Part of that process was historical research on existing markets and reading some high-level stuff and talking to people that worked on them. Once I did that with sort of the algorithm brain that I've developed and started thinking about these things in terms of information theory, that's when I realized the the sort of flaws in the reasoning that, that underlay them. So suddenly we've got this situation where I'm sitting on this knowledge of, of a foundational crack in, in what is one of the pillars that the world is propped up on, combined with this completely different technology, which at the mathematical level is thousands of times better. That got me to here. <laughs> Do you see a situation, I, I'm trying to find the study because I remember this, of a societal, I know I'm going into like some territory here, but do you see some kind of collapse? There was that study in the 70s, I want to say, where they said by 2040, if things didn't change, if I'd they say kept on the path. It would I'd say it's fine. an option. What, I, what I'd say is that what is not optional is that the institutions that we have, social, political, religious, economic, everything, they, they have no realistic future. One of the examples I like to give is imagine a debate between Elizabeth I and Elizabeth II on the topic, has there always been an England? And I think you might be able to find some distance between their perspectives on that question. You know, Liz I oversaw pretty much the founding of the empire. Liz II oversaw absolutely the dismantlement of same. The difference is not exclusively the Industrial Revolution. But it's, it's hard to point to a more significant historical event than the Industrial Revolution. And again, I think computers are a bigger deal than steam engines. And so if the mere introduction of an efficient heat engine is enough that the entire Western world isn't Catholic anymore, and that we abandon feudalism for this sort of bureaucratic, demotic-like you know, democratic republicanism or whatever. What shouldn't we expect to survive information communication transmission? You know, I think people will keep eating. Uh, I, I don't see, I don't see any realistic way for us to rejigger our foundational biology in these ways in, in certainly the short term. But a governmental system based on the difficulty of communicating over long distances is kind of meaningless in a world where we've developed the internet. Yeah. So what sort of different systems would be, would be valuable? Uh, I think juries are probably much more practical and much more valuable for decision-making than we use them for today. We have a strong attachment to the notion of mass vote, but obviously there's more issues than be practically applicable to such a thing. Basic statistical sampling theory says that if you have a reasonably homogenous group, then samples of that group will 
will match it to an extremely high degree. Is the creation of homogenous groups easier or harder under a mass democratized communication structure? I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. Right now, it's looking like we become much more polarized under such situations. On the other hand, right now, our primary mechanisms are things like Facebook and Twitter, which have algorithms designed to economize us. So I was going to say that part of the problem I see is that the AI that's been used has been used to almost chip away at humans, right? It takes away your humanity, kind of puts you into segments. It's looking at almost data points used to market against you or influence your brain in a certain way. And it's not being used correctly, I guess, at this point. I would very strongly agree with that. Yeah, um, And and I think that political and, and social and even religious thinkers are going to be stepping up to that plate and getting some real free dingers out of it. You know, it's, it doesn't take much to demonize Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) No, he's, he's pretty definitely stolen everything that he has. Yeah. um, And seems to be very diabolical in his stated motives for doing so. That's, probably a little you know too easy but somebody's going to pick up that low-hanging fruit and run with it uh, probably in a very bad direction yeah so but again i think there's a lot of opportunity for for stepping forward and trying to find solutions or possible solutions to these issues and whether that's some sort of mass wholesale rejection and, you know, sort of universal spread of Amishness or something, or somebody actually figuring out the brain society connection that allows us to have a social media that's not going to be killing us. Yeah. All of that is to play for. And even contributing to such a solution is likely to be the greatest work that anyone could do in their lifetimes. I'm doing something that's not that certainly, but is is similar. That same sort of situation is investing marketplaces where markets essentially can isolate individual traders and put them into a universe where what they see is not indicative of broader reality. And that's a very profitable thing to do to people. If you think that prices are lower than they ought to be and you're a producer, then you'll sell to me for a lot less than I'd have to pay if you knew what was going on. And if some consumer thinks that prices are much higher than they ought to be, then I can sell to them for much more. And that spread middle will make me a lot of money, even if me isn't a single entity, but thousands of competing entities, which which it is, in fact. And we're, in fact, seeing this right now. The cost inflation that you see in the supermarket and food is not pushing all the way through to farmers because the farmers had to hedge their positions in order to be able to make their credit payments to be able to keep being farmers. And so it will be one or two or maybe more growing cycles before they'll start, many of them will start seeing the revenues come in. Um, And so to the extent that these price increases are the result of supply restriction, the supply restriction will continue because there's no point in increasing yields until after you're actually going to get paid for it. Yeah, and, you know, that's the inflation is very, very convoluted area because there's just so much that goes into it. And there's different types of inflation, too. And I like what you're talking about, the, when they look at that inflation number, they usually lop it all together. But it's usually like something like, all right, so beef might be inflated 15%, whereas, you know, something else like chicken or something's 5%. I'm just throwing out numbers. At right. this yeah, sure. So it's basically, I mean, obviously there's there's things that will that's going to hurt everybody, but it's also kind of like what your lifestyle is too and what you're willing to put well, up with or change. Are you familiar with hedonics? Um, not really, but if you want to get into it, I would love to hear. So hedonics was a thing that I think we came up with maybe in the 80s. It was essentially the notion that people make substitutions. So if beef is up 15%, a family that that used to buy, you know, like filet mignon, maybe they just buy a regular steak. And so the amount of money that they're spending on their beef is actually the same because the steak that they're buying, it's not the same kind of steak, but it's still steak. 
spending the same money, yeah. Spending the same amount of money. And so porterhouse or hamburger, it's all just beef, right? Right. If hamburger today costs what porterhouse did 20 years ago, which it doesn't, it costs more than that. But um, <laughs> but but if it did, then effectively there's no inflation because what's the difference between eating a hamburger and a porterhouse? And that's what Hedonics has been doing, basically saying that as Americans voluntarily choose a lower quality of life, that ameliorates inflation, which is is very much putting the cart before the horse. As inflation deteriorates the American way of life, um, the, the government decides not to measure it. Is is what's actually going on? So it's, it's so it's hard to really get the true scope of it. When you're, um, you're yeah, well, that's that's the the foundational difficulty of economics. This is what Adam Smith was pointing out: is that actually running a, a national economy is a problem that's so difficult that we effectively need everyone's brains working on it. And while smarter people do exist, just as stronger people exist, there's sort of, there's no people that are smarter than like, you know, 50 other people. There's no people that are stronger. You know, professional athletes are amazing. And you literally could not win a game of one-on-one basketball with anybody that's in the NBA. But if I got like 50 playgrounds full of pickup players and had them play 300 on one on anyone that's ever been in the NBA, you know, whoever your goat is at their peak, it's no chance. like they're, they're, yeah. Yeah, zero chance. Like the, yeah. the, the, you know, they'd be, they'd be dribbling through a sea of hands. The ball would get batted away, get picked up by somebody that's five bodies away and, and, you know, tossed it around and somebody could be sitting under the basket, just like, you know, trying, it it doesn't matter like how incompetent these people are. They could be, they could be like eighth graders or something. It's the number of bodies. And so economically everybody has their own interests and doing the best you can for everybody's own interests needs everybody to be a part of that system to be doing that thinking, to be trying to solve those problems. Yeah. And what we have done is we've essentially said, well, we can specialize and we can sort of get select people to make these decisions for us. And whether it's, it's a communist bureaucracy or, you know, AI computer aided uh, hyper traders, it doesn't matter. There's not enough brains in that group to match all the brains and so we we need to federate information from everyone in order to make systems that will actually be able to deal with what we're dealing with because everyone's part of it yeah it's all symbiotic i'm gonna wrap this up so take the floor here if there's anything you want to say about ddm do you see a timeline do you have some kind of idea you know in the next five or ten years where you 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 have a vision for where this is going um well when the system that we're using now was originally adopted, it was the city-states of Northern Italy that, that launched the Renaissance. So mm-hmm. my feeling is that once CDM actually gets into operation somewhere and demonstrates its improved capacity to create prices that are of value to the producers and consumers of the world, that pickup will be relatively rapid. From the first one that sort of gets set up and operates and demonstrates what it's working, I'd say five to 10 years is not at all unrealistic for a general conversion of how things are done. Consider how fast Facebook advanced and consider that Facebook doesn't move your entire family to a new tax bracket as soon as you start using it. Uh, And so that's sort of the reason I'm kind of scattering seeds everywhere I can find them and, and scouring the world is that... Every train that leaves the station is going to the same destination of either complete human rejection or economic adoption and, and a radically wealthier world to live in. And so that's that's what I do. I just I'm heading out trying to find those opportunities. Well, you know, I want to thank you for taking some time with us. Like I said, wasn't wasn't really my wheelhouse, but this is why I love doing this. I like to get a grasp on just other ideas and economics is a tricky one. You know, it's like, I know enough, <laughs> but to really get into the weeds of it, it's like, just, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where we could do much better job educating people into even the mechanics, you know, the, the basic structure of 
of how marketplaces function yeah. you know, served as as a key point of the film trading places, which is a classic. So it's something that can be explained to sort of grade school kids and can be engaged in by even grade school kids um, in a gamified environment. Obviously, in the real world, the very high stakes leads to very sharp operators dominating the, the space. But a lot more understanding could exist. Unfortunately, today, since the markets have effectively corrupted themselves, there's no impetus to to create that understanding because right. understanding would effectively lead to hostility. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for coming on. Do you have any place if you want to plug where to find you or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I have a website, cordisc.com, C-O-O-R-D-I-S-C. And you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm Noah Healy Bear, or email me, uh, Noah P. Healy at yahoo.com. There's a white paper, a video, uh, other things to, uh, to check out. Well, Noah, thanks again for taking some time with me. Okay. Thank you very much for having me here. Yeah. All right. Take care. Thanks to everyone who took some time out of their day today to listen. The With Jaybird Show is available wherever you find your favorite podcast or go directly to jaybirdshow.podbean.com and subscribe to get the latest episodes. I know it may not always be a straight line, but I hope we'll see you again to take the journey and escape a while for thoughtful excursions into the world of ideas across politics, technology, pop culture, and all realms of civic life. See you soon. Everything's stuck.